Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about many of the economic angles of the COVID-19 pandemic, including the role of the shock doctrine in the wake of the coronavirus, calls for a socially just economic recovery, calls for the elderly to volunteer to be turned into Soylent Green, and the biggest reverse Robin Hood bailout of all time. And we've got a huge, huge show for you today, so we're going to get right to it. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, The Zero Hour, Counterspin, The Brian Lehrer Show, The Ezra Klein Show, The Bugle, Deep Background, The Majority Report, The Last Post, A Progressive Faith Sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, and Intercepted. We begin with a new video by author and activist Naomi Klein, produced by The Intercept. In 2007, Klein wrote The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Now, she argues Trump's plan is a pandemic shock doctrine, but it's not the only way forward. The video opens with this quote from economist Milton Friedman, who says, "...only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around." ideas that are lying around. Friedman, one of history's most extreme free market economists, was wrong about a whole lot. But he was right about that. In times of crisis, seemingly impossible ideas suddenly become possible. But whose ideas? Sensible, fair ones, designed to keep as many people as possible safe, secure, and healthy? Or predatory ideas, designed to further enrich the already unimaginably wealthy while leaving the most vulnerable further exposed. The world economy is seizing up in the face of cascading shocks. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. In the wake of the coronavirus crisis, stocks have stopped trading on Wall Street after a 7% drop. This is a historical day, the biggest drop we've seen since that crash in 1987. The drop was spurred by a growing oil price war as the market was already weakened by coronavirus fears. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all. In the midst of this widespread panic, corporate lobbyists of all stripes are, of course, dusting off all the ideas they had lying around. Trump is pushing a suspension of the payroll tax, which could bankrupt Social Security, providing the excuse to cut it or privatize it completely, an idea that has been lying around for a very long time. A worker at his or her option ought to be allowed to put some of their own money in a, you know, in a, in a private savings account. Lying around on both sides of the aisle. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. And then there are the ideas being floated to bail out some of the wealthiest and most polluting sectors in our economy. We are working very closely with the cruise line industry, likewise with the airline industry. They make two great industries and we'll be helping them through this patch. Bailouts for fracking companies, not to mention cruise ships, airlines and hotels, handouts which Trump could benefit from personally which is a big problem because the virus isn't the only crisis we face. There's also climate disruption, and these industries that are getting rescued with our money are the ones driving it. Trump has also been meeting with the private health insurers. We're meeting with the 
top executives of the health insurance companies. The very ones who have made sure that so many Americans can't afford the care they need. And what are the chances they don't have their hands out? It seems like the whole pandemic is getting outsourced. Well, Mr. President, thank you for inviting us here today, along with our colleagues from Walmart and Walgreens and our partners at CVS. Normally, you'd view us as competitors, but today we're focused on a common competitor, and that's defeating the spread of the coronavirus. The Fed's first move was to pump $1.5 trillion into the financial markets, with more undoubtedly on the way. But if you're a worker, especially a gig worker, there's a very good chance you're out of luck. If you do need to see a doctor for care, there's a good chance no one's going to help you pay if you aren't covered. And if you want to heed the public health warnings to stay home from work, there's also a chance that you won't get paid. Of course, you still need to pay your rent and all of your debts, medical, student, credit card, mortgage. The results are predictable. Too many sick people have no choice but to go to work, which means more people contracting and spreading the virus. And without comprehensive bailouts for workers, we can expect more bankruptcies and more homelessness down the road. Look, we know this script. In 2008, the last time we had a global financial meltdown, the same kinds of bad ideas for no-strings-attached corporate bailouts carried the day. And regular people around the world paid the price. And even that was entirely predictable. 13 years ago, I wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. It described a brutal and recurring tactic by right-wing governments. After a shocking event, a war, coup, terrorist attack, market crash, or natural disaster, they exploit the public's disorientation, suspend democracy, push through radical free market policies that enrich the 1% at the expense of the poor and middle class. But here is what my research has taught me. Shocks and crises don't always go the shock doctrine path. In fact, it's possible for crisis to catalyze a kind of evolutionary leap. Think of the 1930s, when the Great Depression led to the New Deal. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In the United States and elsewhere, governments began to weave a social safety net so that the next time there was a crash, there would be programs like Social Security to catch people. The right of every family to a decent home the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. Look, we know what Trump's plan is, a pandemic shock doctrine featuring all the most dangerous ideas lying around, from privatizing Social Security to locking down borders to caging even more migrants. Hell, he might even try canceling elections. But the end of this story hasn't been written yet. It is an election year, and social movements and insurgent politicians are already mobilized. And like in the 1930s, we have a whole bunch of other ideas lying around. Do we believe that everybody should be entitled as a right to health care? Yeah! Do not stop organizing and fighting until all unhoused folks who want shelter have shelter. Canceling student debt. It makes so much sense that uh, if you're sick that you should not be penalized where you don't have an income. Many of these ideas were dismissed as too radical just a week ago. 
Now, they're starting to seem like the only reasonable path to get out of this crisis and prevent future ones. Now, here's something that helps explain the difference between the testing situation in South Korea and the U.S. The South Korea, like European countries and Canada, has universal single-payer insurance. And that means that it's easier to mobilize, and also people know what to do. There is pretty much one answer for how to get testing. The U.S. is a patchwork of countless different systems, and so you can't say, here's exactly the steps that every American should take in order to get tested. And with Washington suddenly in the giant stimulus business, this is precisely the time for the stimulus that many of us have been talking about for years. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. It's called the Green New Deal. Instead of rescuing the dirty industries of the last century, we should be boosting the clean ones that will lead us into safety in the coming century. If there is one thing history teaches us, it's that moments of shock are profoundly volatile. We either lose a whole lot of ground, get fleeced by elites and pay the price for decades, or we win progressive victories that seemed impossible just a few weeks earlier. This is no time to lose our nerve. The future will be determined by whoever is willing to fight harder for the ideas they have lying around. That's author and activist Naomi Klein of The Intercept. The video ends with Milton Friedman's quote, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When the crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on ideas that are laying around. That, I believe, is our basic function to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. What we're seeing now is an illustration of the failure of economics to think more broadly about something like the health sector, because the health sector is behavior, the health sector is biology, the health sector is social, and uh, you know the ideology of economics says no, it's just the it's just the flow of inputs and money through a system. And it will regulate itself if you allow the private sector to dominate, which I think is delusional. But I, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, even in economics, the narrowness and inadequacy of the profession uh, is sometimes recognized. I'm going to give you an example uh, to show that, but also then to apply it to the coronavirus. In economics, at least in the school, you are taught to distinguish between what are called private costs and social costs. What does that mean? It means that for something to be efficient, anything, uh, raising an interest rate, pumping more money into the economy, building an extra wing on your factory, investing in this or that, all of these kinds of decisions are supposed to be made efficient by a balancing, a calculation of the costs and the benefits. So let's take every private capitalist business there is. It calculates costs or benefits. Should we hire more people? Should we fire people? 
Should we expand our business? Should we buy more trucks? Whatever. You, you do a calculation. Students are taught this. You add up the costs of doing the act that you're thinking about, and you add up the benefits that will flow from it. And if the benefits are larger than the costs, you deem the act efficient because it's profitable. That's the logic. It's profitable because the revenues from the act exceed the costs. Then economics did learn, even though it kind of forgets it often, that what the costs are to a businessman are the private costs, the costs that that businessman or woman has to pay. But there are costs of a decision that the capitalist is not required to pay. They are real costs, but they don't figure in the capitalist calculation because he doesn't have to pay them. Let me give you some examples. If you expand your factory and build another wing that has a smokestack, the smoke pouring out of that stack will cause children in the neighborhood to get emphysema or some other disease more often than they would if you hadn't done so. We all know that. Science has done it a hundred times. So that's a real cost. Those kids will get sick. Maybe some of them will die. They will visit doctors that cost money. They will have inhalers that cost money. Those are all the real costs of the act of the capitalist to build another wing on the factory. But it's none of those costs that the capitalist has to pay for, so he doesn't count them. Well, then it could be that what is privately efficient and profitable is at the same time socially inefficient and mm -hmm. unprofitable because if you counted the real cost that the capitalist doesn't pay, they outpace the revenues. Okay, therefore capitalism, and this is the punchline, isn't an efficient system, never was, and isn't able to use the metric, if the benefits exceed the costs I have, it's worth doing. That's false. You have to have a, a, some mechanism of trying, trying at least, not that you can ever fully do it, but trying to estimate the social costs and figure them in. With corona, here's the simple example. We know for at least 150 years of medical science that viruses are always with us that viruses are always mutating, that is changing, and that we will periodically be confronted with viruses that are extremely dangerous to our health. We know that because it has been true for a long time. Therefore, we face the social cost, the social cost of preparing for that, producing and stockpiling all the mechanisms, the test kits, the hospital beds, the, the, the special uh, locations, all of that. But that's not a private cost. Nobody is required privately to do it. So guess what? It isn't done by the private sector. They don't want to bear those costs, and they don't have to. And the government isn't willing to step in because you'd have to tax the people, probably the businesses too, even in this country, to pay for it. And politicians in this private dominated system, want to appear to be friendly to the private sector, impose the minimum regulation, tax them the least, and no, no one does that better than the GOP and Mr. Trump. And so here we are discovering that the social cost 
of not doing what we could have and should have done if we weren't hamstrung by our bowing down to the altar of private profit, that the social cost way exceeds the benefit of having not prepared. That's why I said at the beginning, the money it's, we're wasting and losing now is far in excess of what it would have cost if we had done the calculation in the way that a few economists occasionally admit when they admit that the social costs are not the private costs. We should never have accepted the self-serving logic of the economists. Most of what they do, and I'm one of them, most of what we do is to rationalize and put a pretty mathematical face on something that is cheap and purely self-serving justification for private capitalists not to be interfered with with what's profitable for them no matter what the social cost. It's telling how many media outlets think what the moment calls for is slow cooking recipes and glimpses inside celebrity homes, how certain they are that their audience's main problem is boredom. There are valuable exceptions, of course. BuzzFeed reported March 18th on retail workers finding themselves in the crosshairs of the virus and all the public health information that tells them what they should be doing, and their owners' insistence that showing up and making money is all that matters. Albert Samaha's March 18th report is distressing. An employee at a sunglass hut in a mall in Minnesota says, I see a lot of elderly people walk the mall in the morning. They wouldn't be coming in if none of the stores were open. Gap workers bring sanitizers from home. Starbucks says they won't use reusable cups, but feel free to line up close together to get your coffee. A Spencer's outlet sent out coupons for in-store purchases that expire at the end of the month. So when you read about what companies are doing, remember there's no company. There are workers and owners, and their interests are not the same. And when you hear their CEOs announce what their policies are, it's best to dig a little deeper. The workers BuzzFeed listened to didn't just talk about a lack of paid sick leave, but employers' failure to give them cleaning supplies to wipe off, for example, the plastic cases a GameStop worker was handing out to customers. I can't clean anything in my store, the manager said. I can't ensure my team isn't carrying it right now. I can't guarantee I won't accidentally contribute to some of my favorite regulars who are highly susceptible and end up making them sick. GameStop did not respond to a request for comment. A Godiva Chocolates employee in Illinois said that when they asked managers why their store remained open, quote, their response was that since we're an outdoor mall, the germs don't apply to us and that the mortality rate is too low to concern them, close quote. Godiva Brass wouldn't answer questions, but blah, blah, that the health and well-being of our employees and customers are our highest priority. 
Starbucks workers, including those with dry coughs and those just off international cruises, were told they couldn't take paid sick leave, despite what you may have read about Starbucks policies, because those policies require proof of a positive test result for coronavirus or proof that the employee had been directly exposed to someone who'd been specifically diagnosed with coronavirus. Workers were told they'd get paid leave if the company shut down their whole store, but an employee told BuzzFeed that when their mall location was shut, they were just reassigned to another one nearby. We're hearing talk about a new respect for retail workers as a silver lining of this crisis, but that won't mean anything if it doesn't come with actual interrogation of their bosses. You know, Congresswoman, I've been thinking of the situation today in terms of a kind of racial justice paradox, like Mm -hmm. black and brown people are more likely to lose their jobs in the crisis and suffer food and housing insecurity. The stats show that already. But they're also more likely to be the ones asked to keep their jobs and have risky contact with other people. So my question out of this is kind of broad. What does racial justice look like in a COVID-19 world? Yes, and I'm, I'm glad that you bring this up because there's absolutely, you know, racial and class inequities baked into this crisis. If you are able to stay home, you are a privileged person in this moment and, um, and, you know, in this crisis. A lot of people cannot afford to stay home, um, for a lot of different reasons. And and that's on the economic side of things. On the public health side of things, there are additional layers as well that affect um, racial justice and, and black and brown folks in particular. You know, we have the crisis in Rikers that's going on right now. And every single person in there, um, from the physicians to even correctional officers, are basically indicating that it's a ticking time bomb. And um, you have that element of it. Additionally, you have a long-standing phenomenon of um, black and brown patients in hospitals, in particular black women, whose pain indices are not taken as seriously or treated as seriously as what their self-reporting indicates. So very often um, it's widely reported in medical literature that, say, you have a patient who is a black woman come in and say that they're feeling, um, you know, pain on on a level of an eight scale, and it gets treated as though she's feeling pain on a six or seven scale. And um, and we've already seen coronavirus cases of people who have passed away and black and brown people who have passed away who ask for tests repeated times, say that their symptoms are really bad and they get denied um, for, ex- they get denied tests despite exhibiting symptoms. So we have all of these existing inequities and this crisis like um, like it's done in so many other realms, have, has hit fast forward in um, in essentially exacerbating these um, these these issues. So I think there's a couple of things we can do in terms of racial justice in the coronavirus. One is that we need to start pursuing decarceral policies on Rikers Island, and we needed to start doing it weeks ago. 
Um, we need to examine elderly clemency. There are people in Rikers Island that physicians have reported they have treated 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, infirm people that are still kept in a cage. We need to explore elderly clemency. We need to explore um, the rapid release. You know, there's, there's some level to which this is going on, but it needs to be done on a much larger level. Um, the, the, the physician on Rikers yesterday uh, was basically saying, was, you know, was, was appalled at the lack of um, really humanitarian measures and humanitarian releases that are, that are happening on Rikers right now and the pushback to that. Um, but additionally, there's also the economic piece. Um, as you mentioned, these essential workers are overwhelmingly lower income. They're black, they're brown. And um, these are the folks that are stocking our grocery shelves. They're the ones that are delivering our food. And they still have to pay rent tomorrow. And there's no way, there is no way that hundreds of thousands of people in New York City are going to be able to pay their rent and pay their mortgage when, when through no fault of their own, you know, half of the city's economy has been suspended. And um, we have to make sure that we are addressing their needs. I know that city council, uh, city, the city council speaker, Corey Johnson, has called for a rent moratorium. Senator um, Gennaris in, in my district of Queens has introduced that legislation on a state level, and that's been supported by Alessandro Biaggi and Jessica Ramos, Catalina Cruz, um, Julia Salazar. These are the measures that we need to make sure that we're taking so that we have working people back in this crisis. One thing that I I keep thinking about all this, and this is like a very Bernie Sanders point, but we are asking for a lot of social solidarity and sacrifice from people right now to whom we have not extended social solidarity and sacrifice before. Mm -hmm. People who were not getting paid leave, were not getting paid sick leave, were not getting um, reliable health insurance, or a lot of folks who are quite low income in these states that have not expanded Medicaid, right? who've been like working their asses off with very little to show for it. And now all of a sudden we're saying like, we need you to follow these guidelines, even though you're young and healthy, um, even though it's going to be economically ruinous for you. Mm -hmm. um, Please like stand in solidarity with your fellow Americans and we haven't been doing it for you. And it's something that I'm obsessing about a bit, but that social solidarity doesn't just go one way. It would be, I, it is not my view in any way. I want to be clear about this, that if we, you know, like you can look in countries that do have single payer healthcare programs, like the disease is very bad there too. But in terms of what we were asking of people, it would be much easier to ask it of them. And it'd be much easier for them to comply Mm -hmm. if we had had solidarity in our social policy before today. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we didn't, um, you know, Bernie Sanders has been in some debates and speeches, like sort of making a now more than ever argument, right? Like now more than ever, this shows that we've needed, you know, this this kind of social policy revolution. And I think he's quite right on this, that you Mm -hmm. really see, you really see not just the policy failures here, but the sort of spiritual and communitarian failures Mm -hmm. um, of all of a sudden we need a spirit, an ethos 
that we have not shown each other before mm-hmm. to activate instantly. Yeah. But having not built it, uh, in many cases, it's not there. Right. I really think that there's kind of like a wartime economies equivalent here. So um, there's all sorts of interesting studies about what happens to economies at war, right? Like GDP doesn't really matter. People kind of stop caring so much about like, you know, medium income because there's this idea of like, okay, we need to all sacrifice everything now. We need to turn the entire productive capacity of our economy in one direction. And these economies are amazing in some sense. And often it's all kind of terrible, right? Like war is war is misery and hell and awful. Um, but yeah, I don't think that we have that same sort of sense of like, okay, let's all hold hands and let's do this together because we have a heavily individualistic country. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is that here we pay more we spend more on healthcare and health insurance than like basically anybody else, right? And we're still dramatically underinsured. We do not have the public goods that other countries have, and we don't have the social insurance that other countries have. We just don't. We don't have the safety net. We don't have communitarianism here. It's a very go-it-alone government setup. You can't go it alone in a pandemic. It doesn't work that way. So I think that 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 you know I'm just interested to see downstream there was a there was a poll that was going around that was showing really big shifts towards universal health insurance in the wake of this and I wonder if it isn't just like okay like we can't go it alone in a world of climate change and global pandemics we can't do that There's so many stories here beyond even the science of it. You know, when you see Jeff Bezos, you know, telling Whole Foods workers to share their medical leave, you realize these capitalists really mean it. You know, this is the system they uh, they support all the time. This is what that system looks like at a time like this. And I kind of wonder how people are going to go back to accepting, like, well, okay, you can die in the street as long as you're not contagious, you know. Um, paid sick leave? What? What's that? Debt forgiveness? Who told you that? That's assuming we come out the other side. But I do think problems are, are showing up that aren't going to disappear and reporters are going to have their work cut out. I feel like part of how modern capitalism works is creating uh, an artificial sense that everyone is on the edge of disaster and that you had better show up for work because otherwise you'll lose your health care. You won't be able to, to make your mortgage payments or your rent payments. And that is how, you know, salaries are kept low, wages are kept low and profits are kept high. And now faced with a real disaster, we're going to have to feed people and we're going to have to leave people in their shelter. Uh, we're going to have to provide medical care regardless of whether people have jobs or not, because unemployment's going through the roof. The economic system has got to shut down. It's not an option to leave the economy running while we fight this virus. That, that is not a possibility. Um, and so we're, we're going to have to provide food for people. We're going to have to provide medical care for people. And the the demonstration that that, that can be done without the handholding of the business owners, I think will send a powerful message to people that maybe those business owners are, are not so crucial as they would like us to believe. 
So there is this growing debate about whether the social distancing cure with all of the economic pain it will cause is worse than just letting coronavirus rip through the population. As a bioethicist, when you hear that debate, what do you hear? I hear a conversation going on at about two or three different levels. At the sort of 10,000 foot level, it sounds initially like a debate about national moral and political priorities. It sounds like we're having a national disagreement about what to prioritize from a moral point of view. And this is the, do we save the economy or do we save lives? That's how it's framed. So that's the first level. The next level is, okay, is that frame really correct? Is that how we should be thinking about what these trade-offs involve? And then we get into a a sort of deep need to analyze the different empirical predictions that the two positions land on. But I want to get back to that. But let's stay for a while on that first big trade-off notion. When we get into a discussion about whether we want to save the economy or save lives, you get the response that we have heard from Governor Cuomo so eloquently, you can't place a price on human life. So, of course, we have to choose lives. The problem with that claim is that we place a price on life all the time in lots of different contexts. So you you have to say more than that. You have to say more than we don't place a price on human life. The problem here seems to me to be not that we don't place a price on human life. We do it all the time. But that we do it inconsistently. And so you have people saying, well, why – endure this level of economic dislocation when we don't keep the speed limit at 40 miles per hour so people don't crash their cars or ban all all cigarettes, isn't this inconsistent in a way that is going to harm people much more than maybe other ways of saving lives would um, that we could choose instead? And there's this appeal to a form of rationality that we apply, it seems to me, very inconsistently. Absolutely, we apply it inconsistently. And we know there are lots of good reasons why we apply it inconsistently. And we could get into a great conversation about how uh, risk perception and cognitive biases are very much altering the way in which we're thinking about things right now. But even given right the fact that we do apply how we price life inconsistently, right, we're in a special context now. So let me see if I can draw an analogy for you from the health frame. Right. So when we talk about how much to allocate, say, for the health budget of the city of New York, we're thinking about standard sorts of trade-offs there, difficult ones between the other services that the city of New York has to provide its citizens. But we're also thinking about it in regular order, under normal times. And we know that we set limits and we know that those, those limits have effects on people's lives that are not good and sometimes are limits that, that end life. But it's in the sort of ordinary way in which we live and function as a society. Think about when the, the classic baby is on the bottom of the well, right? When the baby is at the bottom of the well, we marshal all sorts of resources to save the baby. Now, you could say that's inconsistent. You could say that's a function of misunderstanding human emotions and cognitive biases. Or you could say 
that there is something very special about rescuing people from the brink of death. This is a classic debate in my field in bioethics. What we're facing here is a situation in which we've got hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people either in the well or about to fall in. And so when we consider how we should respond in this kind of a context, the sort of moral frame changes. In this context, it's really, really difficult. And I would argue, as an aside, morally wrong for society to pull back and say, you know what? Sorry, this is normal order. And in normal order, we just can't save all these people. Well, here we're talking about an enormous number of people that we know are going to die or suffer grievously if we don't act. That's the context in which we're in. And that's the context in which we think about saving the economy versus saving lives. You could get the response that we got from the lieutenant governor of Texas when he said, Let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. But is that really what we're facing? Is his way of shaping up, as it were, the moral dilemma correct? Is this fundamentally an ethical question and trade-off we're facing, or is this an empirical question and trade-off we're facing about the likely outcomes of different scenarios? So this is like my favorite question ever, right? Really? Uh, and the reason, <laughs> not, honestly, I'll t- across many contexts, because I always want to get back to the recognition that sometimes you have moral disagreements that are fundamentally moral disagreements, right? No amount of empirical information is going to shake anybody from their view. It doesn't really much matter. I believe the physician-assisted suicide is never morally permissible. You can put the most extreme case in front of me. It's just wrong. Someone would hold the opposite view. From a situation in which, as you start to dissect what people are arguing over, the lieutenant governor of Texas is saying, I'm going to sacrifice myself so my kids can have an American way of life. When you start looking at that claim and you say, how much of that position would I agree with if I really thought that was the only way to preserve the American way of life for my kids and grandkids? If I thought that was the case, then I might say, look, I'll run my chances. I've had, you know, seven decades or whatever. I'll go for it. But actually, I don't agree with him empirically. I don't believe, right, what he believes about the contingent facts of the matter. So we're not necessarily having a moral disagreement. It just sounds like it, right? It sounds like I'm being selfish as a 70-year-old, right, if I disagree with him because I'm going to put my life above the welfare of my children and grandchildren. But in fact, It's not the case. He has a set of empirical assumptions about what's going to happen if we continue to take an enormous hit in the economy that leads to the conclusion that the United States will be so crippled 
that his kids will not be able to have the kind his grandkids will not be able to have anything like the life that he's had. Somebody else looks at the same sort of trade-off and says, no, wait a minute. I don't think that's what's going to happen in the world at all. If you've got very different empirical sort of views of how this is going to play out and what's going to be really awful, right? What looks like a moral disagreement ends up being a disagreement about probabilities and contingencies. Now, having said that, often the way we see what we believe is likely to happen empirically, the way we frame what we believe is likely to happen empirically is conditioned by our moral values. And what I tend to think of as a really important way to live my life. So it's complicated. But the bottom line is, we just have very different sets of empirical assumptions about how just how bad it's going to be and for whom and for how long under these exaggerated polar opposite positions. We're going to either the economy is going to come roaring back or everybody's going to die. I want to hold on that idea for a minute of for whom, because one thing I thought when I heard Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick make that argument is that if Lieutenant Governor of Texas gets coronavirus as a older person, he is not going to be denied a ventilator no matter what is happening in the Texas healthcare system. Probably not. He is not a poor senior. He's not somebody with a weak attachment to the healthcare system. He's not somebody who can't get himself to the front of the line. And But this goes in both directions. And so I want to talk about these two dimensions of vulnerability here. On the one hand, a lot of the people banging on most moralistically and loudly about social distancing are knowledge workers who get to stay safely at home with their same jobs, going to Instacart to get their groceries delivered. And meanwhile, there are all these people out there making the economy run for them at great risk. The flip side of that is that in a world where we flood everybody back out into the economy, the people who are going to be most vulnerable to this, not just seniors, but people who are less attached to the healthcare system, people who are insecurely housed, people who are in prison populations, etc., are going to pay a price that is being decided for them by those with a lot more privilege. And I'm curious how you think about these trade-offs between the much less vulnerable people who are having this conversation loudly and making these decisions and the much more vulnerable populations who will be subject to whatever they end up deciding. You may remember that I said that however you spin this out, when there are winners and losers in public policy generally, but certainly in a context like this, When you identify who's going to win and who's going to lose or who's going to win more and who's going to lose less in a scenario like we're facing now, there's an absolute moral obligation to mitigate the burden that's going to fall on the people who are going to lose the most. And it's especially problematic from the standpoint of questions about structural injustice when the people who are going to lose the most are the people who already are the most disadvantaged, which is, by the way, what happens every single time there's a public health emergency, every single time. It's always the people who are the least disadvantaged that suffer the most in wealthy countries, and it's the people in poor countries generally who suffer more than the people in high-income countries. So in the context in which you talk about social distancing now, I've been saying this you know, in as many contexts as I can, as loudly as I can. It is absolutely unacceptable that we do not do 
what needs to be done to put a floor underneath the feet of the people who are taking the hit the hardest. And that includes especially the people who have to continue as essential workers, including, especially within them, those that are not professionals, right, who are taking the hit, but who are not in professional roles where they have at least some understanding of professional ethics that that takes them to work with honor and pride, right? It includes especially the children from low-income families and families of color, disproportionately low-income, who are going to suffer the most from school closings. We, we can't just act as if there are no burdens that follow from social distancing. And you're right. So if it's the knowledge elites who can work at home. But believe me, it's not just the knowledge elites. And of course, you know this, Ezra. It's every doctor and nurse I know, every respiratory therapist I'm aware of, who is not staying home who can't stay home. And frankly, I don't know how we can face those people and what they will be confronting and what we will be asking of them if we don't do something other than simply just say, okay, that was a good three weeks, let's go back, or two weeks. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it's more the point that we have have that obligation to dig deeper and say, wait a minute, right? This burden is not falling evenly on all of us. I can work from home. You can work from home. Great. Most people who are working from home now are not working. They're just home because they can't work from home and they're losing their, they're losing their everything. And that's, that should not then immediately turn to, okay, that means we have to stop and get the economy going again. That's not the only option. The other options, of course, then, you know, the nightmare that's been going on on, on the Hill for, the past week of trying to get out some piece of coherent legislation that recognizes that we need a massive response to a massive, massive crisis. Best of the Left is a totally independent production. We have no parent company, no safety net, nothing like that. We are totally dependent on the direct financial support of the audience. And we have three people who don't work full-time on the show, but definitely depend on the show to generate money. So we are as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. You know, when, when people start not being able to go to work or getting laid off, non-essential expenses are going to be the first to go. And that means we expect to begin to see a drop in Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show on Patreon, that would be amazing. But there's also a way that you can support the show without it costing you anything. If you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we will get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes and on the device you're using to listen right now. They're also available on our website, bestofleft.com, in the sidebar. If you take just a couple of minutes to bookmark the link to your store on your browsers and even delete the mobile app from your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular shopping. Thanks so much for your help and support. 
In Australia, it's been fascinating because uh, Scott Morrison of the Australian government has released a series of very clear instructions to the people of Australia, which are incredibly confusing about what you should do and what should stay open uh, when asked what jobs are essential jobs, categorized as essential jobs that you should still still go to. He said, all jobs are essential. Uh, <laughs> he's also insisting... He's also insisting that hairdresser appointments are an essential service that must be kept open, but you shouldn't go to the hairdresser for more than half an hour. I mean, everyone's got their addiction, but I reckon he's just preparing for a full apocalypse. I think hairdressers are going to be essential when everything goes to absolute shit because we all need to get our mohawks in shape for the Thunderdome. (laughs) I've always wondered why stylists get so much work in post-apocalyptic economies. You've got your thugs, your guards, your your scrappy street kids, your warlords, and your hair and nail specialists. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when half an hour in a hairdresser is more than i've spent in a hairdresser in a year beginning with two so uh, i think i'm gonna <laughs> manage to self-isolate from uh, my coiffure um uh, other well in, in britain uh, uh off licenses have been added to the list of kind of socially crucial outlets that are allowed to uh, remain open because there is absolutely no way britain can possibly get through this level of isolation and social restriction without access to copious quantities of uh, of alcohol um yeah get drunk and get a trim <laughs> um other world leads have been affected angela merkel and justin trudeau are also operating in isolation um although they've not yet no, not been diagnosed as suffering from the virus uh, whereas uh, bolsonaro of brazil and the mexican president lopez obrador are essentially going around licking babies like ice creams and firing <laughs> a t-shirt cannon adapted to fire viruses into their adoring fans they are not giving in to the demands of science and common sense. Well, uh, Mr. Putin is, though. Vladimir Putin has been seen making a surprise visit to an infectious disease hospital in Komunaka, which is a settlement on the outskirts of Moscow. I just don't think uh, Vladimir Putin making a surprise visit to anywhere is a good idea. I think he's going to shock people into heart attacks. (laughs) But he went there wearing a full hazmat suit, uh, which has led to some crazy memes. I think it's the first time I've ever seen Putin with a shirt on, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strong look for him. I mean, it has brought out the best and worst in humanity, this crisis, very much like other things do, for example, war and life in general. But unfortunately, in the current climate, many of those from whom it has drawn the worst are rulers of large countries. And <laughs> obviously, um, leading the way um, is uh, Mr. Trump. Trump, as always, has said some, uh, well, controversial things. He's uh, said that he wants uh, America back to business by Easter, uh, which is not very far away, uh, assuming that he's referring to this Easter uh, rather than, I don't know, some future putative <laughs> Easter when, I don't know, the, the Messiah's second coming is ended by uh, crucifixion to the sequel. His thinking is that the economic damage is worse than uh, <laughs> than is necessary for the lives of his citizens. The cure is worse than the problem uh, said uh, trumpled stiltskin uh, this week which is reminiscent of captain smith <laughs> saying well it's a shorter distance to pour if we try to go through the iceberg rather than around it so full steam ahead <laughs> trump said we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself words that in an ideal world would have been uttered repeatedly by every single republican voter as they as they walked into those polling stations in november 2016 and he added the whole concept of death is terrible 
I mean, he's he's supposed he's <laughs> pretending to be a Christian. Is his supporter base? It's, I mean, death was cracking PR for your special boy, wasn't it? Jeez, as his mates called him. Uh, the uh, <laughs> Republican uh, Lieutenant Governor of uh, Texas, Dan Patrick, um, heroically pretty much advocated the uh, sacrifice of the older generation uh, on economic grounds. He said, "Those of us who are seventy plus will take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country." He said, "No one uh, reached out to me and said." As a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that America loves for its children and grandchildren? And if that is the exchange, I'm all in. Before one assumes setting an example and slaying himself, humanely of course, in a touchingly humble act of penance to his spiritual lord and master and saviour, economics. Perhaps he straight away after that speech he went and pumped millions of dollars into a TV advertising campaign targeted at the viro vulnerable community, showing himself willfully pegging out for the greater good in a range of fun ways, drowning in a vat of <laughs> strawberry jelly, human catapulted across the beautiful Appalachian Mountains, or humped to death by giant mechanical sex robot George Washington. There could be no greater act of patriotism, surely. Uh, despite the uh, inference of uh, Trump's and Patrick's suggestions, the cyanide for septuagenarians movement has not yet had that much political traction, but uh, watch this space. You you wouldn't consider that it would be a viable political position to just put an entire generation on an ice floe and send them out to sea, but apparently it is. Yep. When a country is in bad recession not because of an external shock like this, but because of something more fundamental to the economic cycle or even in depression as a result of the economic cycle, it can be really slow and painful to, to grow out of it. In this instance, presumably, when this is over, although we'll still be worried about our future in which this could happen more frequently, confidence, I would think, would come back pretty quickly because people will be able to remember, you know, it won't be years from now, so people will be able to remember what it was like before, and they should in principle be able to get back to the confidence levels that they had previously, obviously updated for the reality that there can indeed be a pandemic that, that crunches us. Does that sound like a, a hopelessly optimistic way of thinking about it? Let's say it's the more optimistic way to think about it, which is possible if nothing else happens in the economy and if we manage to contain this, this virus, and if we take all the actions to soften the blow that we spoke about previously. So if we manage to not turn what should be a temporary shock, although a very severe one, into a more permanent one because we untie all possible economic relationships and break down uh, businesses and many parts of the economy, it is possible in principle that we could, um, you know, jump back to a situation where things are better. But how long this process will take right now and how much we will actually destroy of economic activity is very much up in the air. The point that you keep making about untying economic relations is a really, seems like a really profound one. And the metaphor that keeps coming into my mind is sort of like a fall of Rome situation. You know, you have a very developed economy and it's got lots of people doing complex things in relationship to each other. And then there's an external shock like the fall of Rome. And then instead of everyone bouncing back and rebuilding Rome, you get something like the dark ages where people can't really rebuild those, those kinds of ties. And maybe that's too extreme a way of thinking about it. But is that sort of what you're describing when you talk about the breaking of economic relations? You mean that I lose my job and then 
I stop shopping at the corner store, and then the corner store stops getting supplies from the place which it orders from, and then none of us can exactly rebuild that overnight. We have to slowly, gradually each redevelop each of those links. Exactly. There's so many links between workers and companies, uh, between customers and suppliers, uh, especially also in the very complex supply chains we have right now. So all these all these links are there and are in some sort of equilibrium. And once you start breaking them down, it's going to simply take time to rebuild. It's not as smooth as simply going back to to the way things were at once. These are the things people mean when they say we need to maintain the productive capacity. We need to avoid destroying links in the economy, which are productive and should normally be saved and are simply suffering in the short run. And we need to bridge that short run. It seems to me like we're going to need economists in this next phase of dealing with corona um, just about as much as we need physicians in the first phase. I mean, obviously, the physicians are the ones who are dealing in the immediate term with people's health and, and lives. But people's health and well-being in the long run really does depend on being in a functioning economy. I mean, we know that in a, a down economy more people will become sick, more people will die because there will be poverty, assuming we don't have a perfect social insurance system, and we in the United States definitely don't. So it seems as though the role of the economists as sort of physicians of the economy is going to be absolutely central here. Yes, very soon the economic costs on people who fall into poverty, who have no more income to, you know, take care of their basic of their basic needs, purchase basic necessities, take care of their health in a very basic way, that's going to have gigantic costs and gigantic human costs. So those we also need to avoid. Um, it's hard to rank things uh, because every every situation sounds very bad, whether it is that you're sick, whether it is that you have nothing to eat um, or that you lose, you know, your shelter or your 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 job. All of these are bad. So there will be a role for economists for sure to ensure that the poverty doesn't take a huge toll as well. Matt Stoller has a really interesting piece on his medium uh, medium page, I guess. I don't even know how to talk about that. But... Um, he quotes John Stokes, who who uh, looks into sort of these type of sort of like uh, extreme sort of um, uh, situations and uh, saying that it's in all likelihood, we will in all likelihood be locking down travel in some areas of the U.S. for several weeks, as they did in China. People may be advised against gathering in large groups. It's not clear what any of this will mean for pri- campaigning or primary voting, whether most of us will vote by mail or have our votes delayed. We don't know. Um, and then he goes on to write an interesting piece where he suggests that the coronavirus is going to introduce economic conditions with which few people in modern America are familiar. The prospect of shortages. This is highly likely. It's just a question of how widespread it's going to be. He says, after 25 years of offshoring and consolidation, we now rely on overseas production for just about everything. China shut down much of its production. South Korea and Italy will shut down. This coronavirus will reveal, in other words, a crisis of production, one that's coming just in time for the presidential campaign. Now, the thing is, is that final imports, we're not feeling it because it's it's a lagging indicator, right? Stuff works its way through the uh, supply chain, essentially. And then at one point it runs out. 
Um, he goes on to talk about John Kenneth Galbraith suggesting that we have lived under a political framework known as affluence. As an affluent society, America automatically produces a surfeit of jobs and wealth. The problem is solely one of distributing the bounty. Affluence politics is not the politics of being wealthy, though, but rather the politics of not paying attention to what creates wealth in the first place. He is suggesting here that we're going to go through a period where suddenly we become aware of shortages and that we're going to have to be conscious of like where stuff is coming from. He writes, it's likely Democrats will use this opportunity to further their case for Medicare for all pandemic surveillance and medical bureaucracies focused on billing do not mix well. Stories about astronomical out-of-pocket costs for COVID-19 testing are already circulating. Republicans are likely to take a more xenophobic approach, emphasizing restrictions on foreigners and infected Americans. And he goes, when it comes to managing shortages, however, both parties are split. Between the Wall Street factions that assume affluence and the less mature populist factions that seek assertive public power. So the idea is, he says, regardless, the end of affluence politics means focusing on whether medicine is on shelves, not bitter disputes over bloated and wasteful hospital and insurance billing departments. It means caring about bureaucratic competence in government and accuracy in media, not because these are nice things to have, but because they are necessary to avoid immense widespread suffering. It means understanding that pharmaceutical mergers that benefit shareholders while laying off scientists are destructive, not just because they're unfair, but because they make us less resilient to disease. Finally, it means recognizing that wealth, real wealth, is not defined by accounting games on Wall Street, but the ability to meet the needs of our own people. With those coronavirus bailout numbers appearing to soar to astronomical heights, it seemed like the perfect time to talk to our friend and uh, leading economist, Stephanie Kelton, who is a professor at the State University of New York and the author of the forthcoming book, The Deficit Myth. Uh, Stephanie Kelton, as you may know, is a leading proponent of what is known as modern monetary theory or MMT. We'll talk a little bit about that and how that uh, definitely seems to come into play in the current situation. Without any further ado, Stephanie Kelton, thank you for coming back on the Zero Hour. Yeah, you're welcome, and it's good to be with you, Richard. So listen, first of all, um, so we've endured what seems to me to be decades of austerity thinking of one kind or another. Uh, so just as a global context, you, uh, you know, we don't have the budget for this. We don't have the budget for that. We have to, we've been told for how many years that we can't afford uh, to maintain the social security system at its current levels, much less expand it on and on and on. You know, the whole uh, list better than I do. All of a sudden, Corporate America finds itself in enormous trouble 
And uh, there seems to be no dollar figure too big to be thrown on the table. We're talking about a half a billion dollar, I have an, excuse me, half a trillion dollar rescue uh, package for corporations plus this, what, I don't know, 4.5 trillion in potential loans from the Federal Reserve. Uh, is everybody suddenly, is there something, have we created something called corporate modern monetary theory? Uh, I mean, you know, I definitely understand why you want to look at it that way. We're, as you said, we're looking at maybe $4 trillion in support coming from the Federal Reserve, uh, half a trillion at least, and let's be honest, this is only the first, uh, well, really, it's the third phase, but there will be more money made available. And um, But there is also some money in this $2 trillion bill that came out of the Senate yesterday, um, that will get into the hands of small businesses and working people and other struggling families and so forth. Now, you're right. The lion's share of the total dollar figure, which many of your listeners may have heard, something more like six and a half trillion, is aimed at supporting companies, especially very large companies. So, um, are we somehow able to conjure up trillions of dollars to support major industries and large corporations at a moment's notice after spending years and years uh, talking about how we can't afford to do things like make public colleges and universities tuition-free, cancel student loan debt, move to a Medicare for All system, and on and on? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We are demonstrating for the American people that when Congress is prepared to act, it can always pass legislation and uh, authorize spending, even massive increases in spending, um, without having to stop and worry about this whole, where will we find the money and how are we going to pay for it question that so dogged us uh, for years and years. So, uh, you know, I, I always, I don't know if I got it from you or someone else, but uh, uh, the uh, the labor politician in Great Britain, Anthony Wedgwood, Ben said, uh, no general ever said, I want to bomb Baghdad, but I don't have the budget for it. Now we're seeing a Congress saying, not saying, uh, will never say, I want to bail out Boeing or whomever, but I don't have the budget for it. So uh, I, several things flow out of this, but one of them for me seems to be uh, – yeah, what's the long-term implication here? I mean, uh, as I understand MMT, which is not much, but uh, as I understand it, one of the big constraints is inflationary, right? So are we just, uh, is Congress rather, just generating so much money in order, order to save corporate America? And I would say be a little stingy on the worker side, but uh, are they generating so much money that there's going to be some sort of inflationary crisis coming down the road? Well, I don't think so. I mean, we, we definitely have uh, a couple of things going on, one of which is that lots of businesses are being told that they have to remain closed right now. And so there's a sense in which there's what economists would refer to as a supply shock. You can't produce, you can't, your restaurant can't open, your bar can't open, your barber shop can't open, and the list goes on and on. Your massage parlor, your gym, right? So we are cutting supply in the sense that we're not allowing tens and thousands and millions of companies to manufacture and produce the things that they were producing just a month ago. 
Um, but what I think we're hoping to do is to, you know, we're not flattening the curve. This is hopefully something that we're going to get through in a period of, of months. It may be six, it may be eight, it may be 12. Um, we need to contain the spread of the virus and develop a vaccine, and we'll come out of this on the other side. But in the interim, what we really need to do is to allow people to survive. So people have recurring expenses. You know, if, you're, if your employer tells you, you can't come to work and I can't pay you, that's a problem. So one of the things Congress is trying to do is to make sure that some income continues to flow to people even when they're cut off from payroll. They gotta pay the rent or the mortgage. They may have a car payment, a student loan payment, they got an electric bill, a cable bill, a phone bill. There are recurring expenses. So when we think about an inflation risk associated with all of this spending, the question is really, you know, are people just in receiving income and then handing it back over to the landlord, to the auto dealer, to the bank, and, and paying those recurring expenses. And if that's what's mostly happening, and I think it is, um, you're not going to see inflationary pressures as a result of that. I mean, we got oil prices way down right now. Energy costs are down. So when we think of inflation, you think, what are the main drivers of inflation? It's really housing, healthcare, and energy. So if you were going to see inflation start to pick up and spiral out of control, you'd be looking for housing costs to spike. You can't even buy and sell a home right now. You can't even have an appraisal. You can't even show up a property, right? So energy costs are down. So I'm not worried in this environment about the risks of inflation associated with all of this spending. I think most of it is just people trying to cobble together enough income to hang on through this um, shelter-in-place um, directive and just pay the bills. One of the voices that we don't hear, or the voices overall that we don't hear at the White House, as we see this stream of CEOs surrounding Trump or the conversations he's having in the last few weeks, are the people, the workers directly affected. I wanted to bring in Sarah Nelson, a clip of the president of the Association of Flight Attendants Union. We have told Congress that any stimulus funds for the aviation industry must come with strict rules. That includes requiring employers across aviation to maintain pay and benefits for every worker. No taxpayer money for CEO bonuses, stock buybacks, or dividends. No breaking contracts through bankruptcy. And no federal funds for airlines that are fighting their workers' efforts to join a union. So that's Sarah Nelson, head of the Flight Attendance Union. Uh, Joe Stiglitz, if you can talk about what is actually happening here? And what would a bottom-up bailout actually look like? Um, what would it mean if the workers were guaranteed? Everything from the paid leave—it uh, keeps on being repeated. Now workers will have paid medical leave. But we hear that it's well less than 20 percent. And that was um, uh, uh, reduced and reduced over the weekend through negotiations with Mnuchin. 
So, first, let me say, the Trump proposal is another instance of trickle-down economics. Uh, give money to, to the corporations, and maybe, maybe it'll trickle down to ordinary citizens. And we know from the past it's not going to happen. The 2017 tax bill did not lead to more investment, did not lead to significantly higher wages. It led to bigger uh, almost a trillion dollars of share buybacks. And so, as you say, what we need is a bottoms-up uh, approach. And uh, what she was pointing out is that if you give money to these industries, uh, they aren't going to necessarily behave well. And you see that so clearly in the fight that the big companies uh, fought against paid sick leave. Uh, and let me say why that's really important. It's not just helping uh, the workers. It's helping all of us, because if they don't get sick leave, they're going to go to work. And if they go to work, it will help transmit the disease. So we need a system that people can say, if I'm sick, I don't need to go to work. Uh, and uh, the, the decision of the Trump administration to fight having universal sick leave is another example of their contributing to the spread of the virus and making the pandemic all the worse. Joe Stiglitz, can you talk about what this looks like globally and what is happening with this pandemic, laying bare the growing wealth inequality in the world? Well, what we've created over uh, the last 50 years is a highly globally integrated economy. Uh, there are some other aspects of this economy uh, that we've created. We created an economy without resilience. Uh, I illustrate that by uh, the uh, cars t today that don't have spare tires. Uh, you save a little money in not having a spare tire. Uh, the fact is that when you get the flat tire, uh, you realize what a mistake that was. Uh, not having a spare tire uh, uh, makes uh, a short run, it looks like you've saved a little money. In the long run, you really suffer. And we've created a whole economic system that is extraordinarily fragile, just-in-time inventory production with no inventories. And as we've created this system where you try to squeeze every ounce out of the uh, of waste out of the system you've also squeezed ordinary workers and that is what's contributed to this growing inequality and those two are the same you know different sides of the same coin so our growing inequality and our increased fragility are issues that hopefully the lessons that we'll learn from this crisis is we need to construct a different kind of capitalism, or a different kind of economy that I call in my book progressive capitalism, uh, but it, it, it recognizes that the market doesn't work very well in addressing the major problems our society faces, resilience, inequality, climate change, you name it, uh, they haven't done a good job on it. top story today is a U.S. update. Nato Green, Comandante, you're in the USA right now. Can you tell us the latest news? Ah! Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Well, in the United States, we are experiencing the biggest global public health emergency since World War One, when the uh, misnamed Spanish flu killed 50 million people worldwide. One to two million Americans are projected to die in the next 12 to 18 months. We need to bring society to a complete halt, uh, also deal with the far-reaching social consequence of shutting down society, and then have a recession, and then Trump is getting reelected, and uh, we've shredded the safety net that would be necessary to respond to the crisis. And so what are we doing? The solution is social distancing and flattening the curve, two things that no one knew about <laughs> literally one month ago. Uh, uh, like it's it's bonkers that we're the way that you know we're confronted with this major disease and everyone is like oh yeah so we're gonna have some cutting edge uh, medicine to deal with this uh, no stay uh, just stay home what about we're gonna have lasers to shoot the virus out of our bodies no oh no just we're just staying in our pajamas and not <laughs> bathing like it's the most uh, old fashioned low tech low fi uh, solution to the pandemic imaginable is just staying home and uh, and like wa- watching television, I guess, and reading. Just, uh, just hide from it. Hide yeah. from the virus. Having a, having a, uh, a we're, 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 we're Anne Franking the virus here. Uh, <laughs> by hiding in our own. And then, and then, so, but the grocery stores are still open and I live in a kind of neighborhood. You can imagine where I live, uh, Alice, it's I live in a neighborhood <laughs> where the only grocery store it, you don't need to know anything about San Francisco to know that the only grocery store in my neighborhood is an independent health food store. Um, and so when you go into my neighborhood grocery store, the shelves are like, uh, you know, you can see in different neighborhoods, different kinds of things are picked clean on the shelves. And in my neighborhood, they're strip bare of lentils and kombucha. Um, <laughs> there's been a run on kale. Uh, it's very, it's, it's getting dire, uh, quite frankly. Uh, and then, like, we had a glimmer of hope that potentially Bernie Sanders was going to become the president. Uh, that stopped pretty quickly. The Democrats assembled a Voltron of moderation. Uh, they, they, uh, the, all, all the other Democrats, Democratic candidates dropped out abruptly and unified in the span of a 24 hour period behind Joe Biden. Uh, and, and it's, so we're facing this major emergency that's a collapse of the established order and, uh, centrists, uh, centrists are responding. And the way that centrists like to respond is with a task force. They love a study. Uh, they love they love means testing. Do you? I don't know. You, you have means testing where instead of saying like everyone should get health care, uh, they say everyone should get health care, but also pay for it. And then we have to have a complicated formula to decide how much people pay for it. Uh, it's very complicated, uh, and they love it when it's complicated. The- I've got a I've got a solution to this problem, this healthcare problem. What you need to do is train all your soldiers as doctors. Oh, then people will fund them. Right. Yeah. We maybe maybe if we just called all of the hospitals prisons, uh, America would be interested in investing in. Them. <laughs> um, but there there is some silver linings to the coronavirus. Uh, um, so because it has a higher fatality rate among older people who don't believe in science, which are con- coincidentally the Trump voter base. Uh, if two million old people die, that could be the October surprise that puts Joe Biden over the top in the election. Um, <laughs> it could be the thing, the, the the voter mobilization strategy that the campaign desperately needs to mobilize older voters into the grave. Uh, and one out of eight Trump voters live in a county with no intensive care unit. So we have that going for us. Um, you have counties with no intensive care units at all? Yes. 
Um, That's brutal. <laughs> hey, Nato, have you noticed that your whole country is real brutal? <laughs> it's, uh, we call it individualism. <laughs> Our society has come um, to a point where we have to recognize that it's not just COVID-19 that's making us sick. We've been sick for a long time. We are at a crossroads where we're either going to have to make some very important decisions in short order or we're going to let our negligence run over us. And I got to tell you, our first round of decisions have not exactly filled me with hope. Recognizing what an extended shutdown of the marketplace would do to their population, Canada, Canada immediately decided to send $2,000 a month to every adult in Canada for four months. Imagine what that says to the marketplace that, that there's going to be business for them, even if they're closed right now, that there's going to be an ability to buy and pent up business when they are able to unlock their doors. England voted to pay 80% of every unemployed person's salary during the layoffs. Denmark voted to pay slightly less, 75%, while the United States voted to give over a trillion dollars in bailouts to corporations and to give its citizens a one-time incentive of $1,200. So you want to know what the difference is between Darwinian capitalism and democratic socialism? This is a pretty good example. Right now, in spite of the weather, wouldn't you rather be living in Canada? In this aid package, the Senate had the Congress absolutely over a barrel. They had to agree to the largest transfer of wealth to the top 1% in the history of our country because they had to vote to give this small bit of aid to the poor and the middle class. The people of this nation are literally being held economic hostage by the corporate control of our government. But we can see, at least by contrast, what the difference is between a country that saves its people first in a time of crisis and a country that saves airlines, hotels, and the cruise ship industry in a time of crisis. Suddenly, Medicare for all just doesn't sound all that crazy, does it? A universal basic income seems almost necessary, certainly more necessary than maintaining. You, you, everyone keeps saying, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Right now, what we are paying for is 800 military bases in 70 countries, some of which were established so that we could win World War II, which, as best I can tell, has been over for 80 years. And so all we have to do is pull in our military spending and start spending on human beings. I might be wrong about this. But I don't think so. So who's going to save America in the middle of this Medicare crisis? Will it be the executives at Boeing, at American Airlines, at Hilton Inns? You know they're not going to do it. Now, they are about to give themselves big bonuses out of your pocket. But who stands between us and death? 
Who stands between us and utter social chaos? Nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, the EMS workers. And you know who else? The guys who still come around and pick up our garbage once a week. And those low-waged employees who are risking their lives to restock grocery store shelves. And the kid at the drive-in window at Sonic and McDonald's. Those are the people that we need to recognize that even though our culture has said for a generation that they don't deserve a living wage, they do. They are saving our lives, and we need to save theirs. Some of the most powerful and wealthy individuals in the United States right now are treating essential workers like disposable garbage, and they are treating taxpayer money as their for-profit feeding trough. The so-called coronavirus bailout is one of the most disgraceful and monumental pieces of legislation ever signed into law in this country. Not a single U.S. senator voted against this bill. Not one. And we have no idea what the specific positions of the 435 members of the House of Representatives are because they didn't allow a recorded vote on the bill. The leadership, Democrats and Republicans, just sailed it right through to Trump's desk. Just one member of Congress, a Republican, tried to force a roll call vote, and that failed. For what purposes, gentlemen, uh, seek recognition? Mr. Speaker, I came here to make sure our republic doesn't die by unanimous consent in an empty chamber, and I request a recorded vote. Yes, this bill does contain some stuff for the serfs, for the ordinary people. It contains some pretty meager crumbs that had to be fought over to get them off of the table of the rich that are ultimately going to go to some poor or working people and families. But overwhelmingly, this bill was the quintessential reverse Robin Hood. It steals from the poor and the working class, and it gives, almost with no meaningful oversight, taxpayer funds hand over fist to the richest corporations in this country. Any kind of help that goes to the big industries has got to come with some strings attached, which means making sure that taxpayer dollars are not used just for stock buybacks and to make sure that uh, that CEOs get their bonuses this year, but that it's really used to support payroll. That's what we want to see. Now, while Congress pats itself on the back for this grand compromise, the realities in this country become more dire by the second. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Nurses, doctors, technicians are having to create makeshift protective gear for themselves, They're reusing masks and other disposable equipment. Dead bodies are being placed in refrigerated trucks. And the president, he takes to Twitter or television nonstop to lie. To lie and to make false declarations about how quickly this is all going to be over as he handles it just perfectly. But the new test is easier, simpler, and quick. You're going to know your answer right away. So that's what we're looking for. That's coming out very soon, like almost immediately. Donald Trump also appears to be accusing hospital workers of stealing surgical masks. 
as he brags about the ratings for his macabre coronavirus show. Uh, You expressed some concern in the past that medical supplies were going out the back door and that perhaps some hospitals were doing things worse. I expressed what was told to me by a tremendous uh, power in the business. Uh, He said that at a New York hospital for a long period of time, he was giving 10,000, maybe maximum 20,000 masks over a short time. And all of a sudden, he's giving 300,000. And I said, no matter how bad this is, could that be possible? He said, no. So there's only a couple of things that could happen. Is it going out the back door? Last Friday, President Trump signed into law a more than $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus bill. The final bill passed the House in a voice vote, an extremely questionable move for such a significant piece of legislation. And almost immediately after the bill was passed, Trump did away with many critical oversight requirements that the Democrats had fought for. No surprise there. Trump did this with a short signing statement that effectively gutted accountability provisions from the bill. This means that the largest corporate bailout fund ever authorized by the U.S. Congress is going to be doled out in a secretive process where shady deals can be made at great cost to taxpayers. Here's New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking on the House floor, describing how the GOP used poor and working people as hostages to free hundreds of billions of dollars for the richest corporations. But we have to go into this vote, eyes wide open. What did the Senate majority fight for? One of the largest corporate bailouts with as few strings as possible in American history. Shameful. The greed of that fight is wrong for crumbs, for our families. And the option that we have is to either let them suffer with nothing or to allow this greed and billions of dollars, which will be leveraged into trillions of dollars to contribute to the largest income inequality gap in our future. There should be shame about what was fought for in this bill and the choices that we have to make. Now, Democrats are now floating the idea of a fourth phase, a fourth round of stimulus legislation. While Congress is likely to be suspended until the end of April in the name of coronavirus precautions, Democrats say they are looking for ways to get more bipartisan support for what they describe as a broader relief package. Though some of the early ideas put out by House Speaker Pelosi also seem to be aimed at helping higher-earning Americans. We're going to have to see what happens there. In any case, Republicans seem to have a very different idea. Here's House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Fox News this weekend. I'm not sure we need a fourth package. And before, before we go to start drafting a fourth package, I'd like these three packages we just put out. Remember, it's more than $2 trillion, the largest we've ever seen, to take care and get this economy moving. Now, while McCarthy went on to criticize Nancy Pelosi in repeated interviews about including millions for the Kennedy Center in the bailout, some reporting on this bill has highlighted the Republican-made Easter egg basket for corporations. Journalist David Dayan of the American Prospect magazine laid out how the bill includes, quote, an obscure tax change worth $170 billion to real estate moguls, an acceleration of approvals for, quote unquote, innovative sunscreen products, a reduction in capital requirements for community banks, a gift to for-profit colleges that get to keep federal loan dollars for students that drop out, among many others. 
And David Dayan joins me right now. He's the executive editor of The American Prospect, and he's been writing a daily COVID-19 report. It's called Unsanitized. David Dayan, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me on. So on Friday, President Trump signed this unprecedented $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus bill. Now I'm going to sign this and it's a great honor. $6.2 trillion. I've never signed anything with a T on it. I don't know if I can handle this one much. We can't chicken out at this point. I don't think so, huh? Just start by giving an overview of the major parts of this that were signed into law and what you believe the real cost of the bill is. Right. Well, as you might imagine, there's a lot to it. You know, there are a couple major individual provisions, one being these direct payments, these $1,200 checks that are going to go out to millions of Americans. And the second, probably even the bigger one, is a boost to unemployment insurance where those eligible and Democrats expanded who's eligible for it will get an extra $600 a week as part of uninsurance on top of whatever their states give them. Then you have these lending programs. So there's a small business lending program, which is about $350 billion for millions of small businesses across America that are struggling right now. And then uh, you have uh, about $150 billion for state and local governments, about $100 billion for hospitals. And then there's this, I've been calling it the money cannon. We also have a lot of money set aside for big businesses. You know, the big, powerful companies that were powerful four weeks ago. We have to save some of these great companies that can be great companies. $500 billion in the bill for large corporations. However, that's kind of a misleading statistic. So about 50 billion of that is reserved for the airline industry and also a mysteriously named businesses critical to national security, which everyone believes is Boeing. But the rest of it, the 450 billion left over is intended to go into a Federal Reserve credit facility. You can kind of think of this as like chartering a new bank for the largest corporations in America. And the Federal Reserve will supplement that $450 billion by what they call leverage. They're going to lever it up 10 to 1. So $10 for every dollar that this bill puts in, the Fed will will supplement. And that creates a $4.5 trillion money bazooka that can be aimed at the largest corporations in America with very little restrictions on its use. And even those restrictions are completely at the will of the Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, to override if he so chooses. There's some oversight on this corporate bailout facility, but it's all after the fact. So once the money's out the door, then this oversight panel can write a report about it. But that's a cold comfort. You know, Charlie Savage uh, from the New York Times reported that just a few hours after signing the bill, Trump then, quote, undercut a crucial safeguard that Democrats insisted upon as a condition of agreeing to include a $500 billion corporate bailout fund. Trump, quote, suggested that under his own understanding of his constitutional powers as president, he can gag the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery, known by the acronym SIGPR, SIGPR, and keep information from Congress. Explain this to us. 
you know, this is Lucy with the football, right? I mean, it's uh, Democrats get what they think are legitimate oversight measures. And Trump writes a signing statement, which, you know, uh, we've seen presidents of both parties do routinely over the past several years to say that he doesn't have to give information to this new inspector general about the bailout program. And this is not something that Donald Trump and the people in his administration really believe in. And the idea that you would give up this giant corporate bailout because you got some oversight restrictions on a president who fundamentally doesn't believe that Congress has the capacity or the ability to do any oversight, that just shows you the hollowness of what was passed. Let's talk for a moment about what they're calling phase four, the next potential iteration of this bailout. This is according to the New York Times. Nancy Pelosi said she'd like to see more measures aimed at getting money directly into the hands of individuals and families, including a possible retroactive rollback of the limit on the state and local tax deduction, a change that hurt high earners in states like New York and California. And then Pelosi is quoted as saying they'd have more disposable income, which is the lifeblood of of our economy, a consumer economy that we are. Your response, David? Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous uh, <laughs> to, to use to use this to roll back the state and local tax deduction, about 40% of which goes to millionaires. It only applies to people who itemize their deductions, and it wouldn't apply until next April, I mean, until next spring. And later in that same uh, story at the New York Times, Uh, A spokesman for Pelosi said, well, we can target this towards the middle class. Nobody in the middle class itemizes their deductions. The whole idea that you would do this giant corporate bailout and you would leave a bunch of stuff on the table and that somehow in stimulus episode four, A New Hope, you would come up with a bunch of other stuff that that Republicans would easily agree to is fanciful. And and it's been shown to be fanciful. Uh, uh, There have been White House aides who have been quoted and saying, there's there's no more money. We used all the money in the third bill. You lost your leverage when you agreed to the corporate bailout. And if you didn't maximize the amount of other relief that you wanted, things like paid sick leave, And now there's no reason for Republicans to come to the table. Why do you think you're going to get a fourth bill? I mean, maybe down the road, if the economy truly collapses, Republicans would have an interest in some more measures. But I don't think that's going to happen right away. And uh, already Republicans are saying, let's let the third bill work before we even think about a fourth. What do you foresee as the consequences, the big picture consequences of what Congress and the White House have just done? I really think that this bill could create a country that does not resemble the one that came before it. I have a book coming out in June about the concentration of corporate power that we've seen over the last 40 years. This could accelerate that trend towards concentration. You have millions of small businesses that are going to be fighting over a very little pot of money, and you have these giant corporate behemoths that have much larger resources to deal with. And you could see tons of mergers, acquisitions, scooping up distressed companies. This bill uh, allows the largest actors in any corporate sector to be nursed back to health and to not feel the effects 
of this absolute economic collapse that we're experiencing while smaller and medium-sized businesses have to struggle to stay alive, and a lot of them are not going to. And uh, so I think as a result of this bill, you could see just sweeping changes into our choices as workers, as consumers, as citizens, and more power and wealth rising to the very top rungs of society. We've just heard an enormous number of clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, featuring Naomi Klein's video about the role of the shock doctrine in the coronavirus. The Zero Hour spoke with Professor Richard Wolff about the failure of capitalism to prepare for or respond to the pandemic. Counterspin highlighted the fact that, for many, boredom is not their primary concern right now. The Brian Lehrer Show spoke with AOC about a socially just response. The Ezra Klein Show pointed out that asking for social solidarity to fight the pandemic is a far cry from the usual lack of solidarity our country shows the working class. Counterspin spoke with Jim Narikas about what capitalism looks like during a crisis. The Ezra Klein Show had on a bioethicist to discuss the framing of pitting lives against the economy. The Bugle also discussed the plan to purge the elderly. Deep Background looked at the possible roads ahead for an economic recovery. The Majority Report explained how we're going to become much more familiar with the origins of our goods. The Zero Hour had on Stephanie Kelton to explain the role of modern monetary theory in the stimulus package. Democracy Now! spoke with Joseph Stiglitz about what a bottom-up bailout plan should look like. The Last Post explained the horrors of American individualism. Dr. Roger Ray, in his Progressive Faith sermon, described why the virus isn't the only reason we're sick. And finally, we just heard Intercepted doing a deep dive into the just-passed bailout package. Members are going to be hearing even more along the lines, uh, but from still different angles, uh, the environmental impact of grinding the economy to a halt, for instance, and more ways of framing the debate over human sacrifices to appease the economic gods. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, uh, plus also Amanda sometimes joins, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Craig from Ohio. Your episode from a couple weeks weekends ago with Amanda um, reminded me of some thoughts I had last fall when you were discussing uh, your feelings around the change in the, the time uh, with seasonal affective disorder, daylight savings, and I wanted to let you know that maybe this might help some other people too, that I have a different perspective on the changing of the seasons these days, and it's sort of the opposite of the feeling that you have. I tend to get depressed around this time of year because I don't like the weather getting warmer. And it has a lot to do with, I think, intellectually, 
uh, my knowledge and understanding of how dire the climate situation is. Uh, so I grew up in Ohio. To me, winter for the first half of my life meant very cold temperatures, frozen ground from December through March. And we no longer have that climate. I mean, this winter was extremely mild. Uh, so I tend to miss the uh, old weather that I remember from my youth. I sort of look back on it fondly. It's kind of comforting. I miss the snow. This year we had almost no snow to speak of. It's, it's been extremely mild. And I kind of think of it as a you know, foreboding harbinger of things to come. So I, I don't like the, the days getting longer. I tend to go to bed early, so I hate when I go to bed at 9 o'clock and it's still light outside. I hate the heat. The sun can be oppressive in the middle of the summer. And summers really haven't been that bad. I don't know, notice as much change as I do during the winter. But that's my response this time of year. Um, I think this year it's exacerbated by what happened in the recent primary. It really feels like the progressive movement was just rejected by the country, choosing um, a bad candidate when we had a candidate in Bernie Sanders who has been on the right side of issues for decades. So that's, I think, contributing to it. But anyways, that's my perspective on seasonal affective disorder. I'm kind of the opposite of you. Maybe some other listeners feel the same way. Maybe it helps to give you a different perspective on the whole situation. And that's it. So I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut. On my way to work. Behind in your episodes because I'm driving less, so uh, I'm listening less. Uh, maybe I need to just sit in my car in the driveway and listen to some episodes and catch up. But anyway, uh, Health Center update. We're down in Fairfield County, one of the highest infected counties in Connecticut. And um, everyone's still going to work. Some people are working from home, finding the challenge between coordinations and patients. We've got almost uh, 100 providers providing telehealth services, trying to keep healthy people at home and do routine visits that they need, check in with diabetic patients and so forth and provide that comfort and support and have behavioral health on call for anybody that just needs to talk and trying to create open times for well patients so that pediatric patients can come and still get the vaccines that they need and not interrupt any of those important milestones and cycles and yet have a clean place where providers can work that no patients come in and have a building that we are just seeing sick people in. So fortunately, we have four or five locations and we're trying to convert each one of those into one of those above mentioned categories. And I still have to go in and make sure that all the electronic equipment stuff works. So I'm able to work from home one or two days a week, um, which I find incredibly hard, uh, to be honest. Um, I am much more productive and much more protective of my personal time so when I go into the office and I leave the office I don't think about it but when I'm working from home I work an extra two hours for some silly reason and I'm having a hard time put those boundaries in and then I've got to balance you know two kids trying to do school from home and my wife who works for the state is also from home and so it's been crazy but I found a whole bunch of 
fun ways to cheer people up. And so every day I go to go to work wearing a different hat. So today it's actually a leprechaun hat. And I find that, you know, you just disarm people by being a little bit ridiculous visually. And um, even if you don't have an interaction with them, <laughs> they, they get a smile and a chuckle. And I figure if that's the least of what I can do walking in, that's what I'll do. Uh, the other day I wore a clown mask. <laughs> so anyway, tensions are high, but uh, people are stepping up and people are kinder and friendlier and less angry which is great to see. And um, anyway, that's all I got to report rambling on. Hope everyone is well. Stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I just want to add one quick thought to the end of today's episode. I know that the right has begun to back off a little bit from the let's sacrifice as many lives as necessary to keep the economy going mantra, but I just want to clarify something that, that was said over and over again. Uh, they talked about how people want to go back to work. Part of their reasoning for allowing people to go back to work, damn the risks, was people are saying they want to work. And I don't know if it's pure cynicism or ignorance. That's that's always the debate with with these guys. I mean, cynicism or, uh, or ignorance or stupidity or you know, take your pick. I guess it's not that people want to go to work. This is the the fundamental misunderstandings about the nature of our world that gets hidden with phrases like this: that people want to go to work. What people want is to be economically secure. Of course, they also want to be healthy and, and you know, and health secure in a time like this. But what they want, you know, when, when they say, I want to go back to work, what they mean is, I want to be financially secure. And so then these politicians use that as evidence like, no, 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 we should just keep throwing the cannon fodder at the virus to keep the economy going, damn consequences. And, and this is the same thing that the, there's the classic correction about people who hate Mondays. No, no, no. You don't hate Mondays. You hate capitalism. You hate the system that creates a scenario in which you hate Mondays. People don't necessarily want to go back to work during a pandemic. They want to be economically secure during a pandemic. So don't let that kind of messaging fool you. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you as often as we are able to in these very strange times. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now we'll finish up with everyone's favorite news by Limerick. In case you missed it, uh, Trump did the thing that is genuinely my favorite thing that he does when he admits to things that are blatantly obvious to anyone paying attention and yet vociferously denied by the entire Republican Party and all of their supporters. We all know it's plain as day that the Republican Party suppresses the vote because it helps them win because they're so unpopular that if more people voted, they would not win. Well, Trump came out and said it when talking about the bailout bill and some of the things that Democrats tried to get in that they weren't able to. Trump said, the things they had in there were crazy. They had things, levels of voting that if you'd ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. To which, at Liberix on Twitter writes, Republicans simply won't rest till voters are widely suppressed. The cunning are quiet whenever they try it. Their leader, a nitwit, confessed. <laughs>